You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. June 12th. Dear Sister, We have received orders to cook all our rations, strike tents very quietly, and be ready to move at any time. I write for fear I may not have an opportunity again shortly. So if you do not receive letters for some time, do not be uneasy. You can still write regularly to me, as we have a mail carrier who brings our mail to us. I enclose my certificate of membership with the church, which please give to Dr. White. I am quite well and am prepared to move with the rest. I think before you hear from me again, we will in all probability have had a battle. I fear not the result. Am confident that we, through God, will be victorious. Fear not for my safety. God can protect me amidst the storm of battle, as well as at home. And if I shall fall, I trust that I will go to a better world. And is that not gain? Sergeant Alexander T. Barclay, 4th Virginia Infantry, Stonewall Brigade, Yule's Corps. June 22, 1863, Bivouac on the Road near Berryville, Clark County, Virginia. Dear Mother, I write a few lines, but don't know whether you will receive them or not, but I hope you will, but it is a bad chance from here. We have been on the march since yesterday, a week ago, when we were 10 miles below Fredericksburg. We crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Rapidan, Rappahannock, and both branches of the Shenandoah River, north and south, and are within 21 miles of the Potomac, and I would take any amount for the trip with the most beautiful scenery I ever beheld since I have been in the Army, which is some time, you know. It is supposed that we will go into Pennsylvania, and I hope we may. I hope the officers will devastate the territory and give the enemy a taste of the horrors of war, and that is all that will close the war soon, if anything will. Within itself, the army is in fine spirits and anxious for the trip. You can write, but I don't know when I will get it. I remain your affectionate son, W.B. Taylor. Lieutenant William B. Taylor, 11th North Carolina Infantry, Pettigrew's Brigade, Hills Corps. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 308 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. 
And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, we used the last show to talk about Dick Yule's victory at 2nd Winchester, including the clash at Stevenson's Depot. On only the third day after entering the Shenandoah, Yule had completely cleared away the enemy facing him in the valley with immense captures of men and material and opened the way down the Shenandoah Valley to the Potomac and Maryland. Robert Rhodes' division of Yule's corps had seized Martinsburg, and by June 15th, he and Jenkins' cavalry were already across the Potomac. The few Federals left in the valley were huddled defensively at Harper's Ferry. Second Winchester was a brilliant start to Dick Yule's tenure as corps commander, appearing to prove that he was, indeed, the rightful heir of the mighty Stonewall Jackson. After Second Winchester, Robert E. Lee's army stretched for more than a hundred miles from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, which Jenkins' rebel horsemen entered on June 15th, back to Fredericksburg, Virginia, where elements of Hill's Corps were still keeping watch. In between those two points was the bulk of Ewell's Corps in the valley and Longstreet's Corps, which was still east of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Stretched as it was across a vast swath of countryside, the Confederate Army, at first glance, seemed dangerously extended. But actually, Lee had lessened the risk by taking advantage of certain natural barriers. Lee skillfully used these natural barriers to shield his army and mask his intentions from the enemy. And so here we want to talk a bit about the lay of the land, about geography, and those natural barriers that Lee was using to shield his army. So we encourage you to pull out your Gettysburg Campaign Atlas by Leno, or Gottfried's The Maps of Gettysburg, so that you can see what we're talking about. As we pointed out previously on the podcast, Yule had been tasked with clearing the way down the valley because Robert E. Lee planned to use the Shenandoah as the route his army would take to reach the Potomac River. Once the Confederates were across the Upper Potomac and into Maryland, It was just a short march north to the Mason-Dixon line in Pennsylvania, as Albert Jenkins' rebel horsemen had just proven by striking up into the Keystone State, passing through Greencastle, and penetrating as far as Chambersburg. Why did Robert E. Lee want to use the Shenandoah Valley as the route his army would take to the Potomac River? Well, the maps explain why. If you look at a map, you can see that the geographic feature known as the Shenandoah Valley actually continues north into Pennsylvania, where it's known as the Cumberland Valley. And the Shenandoah slash Cumberland Valley provided an ideal invasion route for the Army of Northern Virginia. It's important to understand that for the invading Confederates, the Shenandoah-Cumberland Valley provided a corridor protected by mountains that led directly into Pennsylvania and to the Susquehanna River. Robert E. Lee's army could use that corridor to move north in a great right-turning arc up through the Cumberland Valley until they reached the western bank of the Susquehanna River opposite the Pennsylvania state capital of Harrisburg. 
Tracy mentioned that the Shenandoah Cumberland Valley provided a protected corridor for the Confederates to use as an invasion route. The protection was supplied by a chain of mountains that shielded the vulnerable eastern flank of Lee's army. Those mountains were the Blue Ridge in Virginia, and then, in Maryland and Pennsylvania, the South Mountain Range. This meant that as the rebel army moved down the Shenandoah Valley to the Potomac, it could use the Blue Ridge Mountains as a shield between it and the Federal Army. And once across the Potomac and marching up into the Keystone State, it could use the northern extension of the Blue Ridge, the South Mountain Range, in the same way. So the takeaway from all of that is, the Shenandoah-Cumberland Valley provided a corridor for the Confederates to use as an invasion route into Pennsylvania, and as they proceeded along that corridor, their eastern flank, the flank nearest the Federal Army, would be protected, would be shielded by mountains, first the Blue Ridge, and then the South Mountain Range. So, there you go. In Washington, Abraham Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck were quite upset at the ease with which Robert E. Lee was marching around Hooker's western flank. Noting the alarming reports from Winchester and Martinsburg in the lower Shenandoah Valley, as well as Hooker's dispatches that the rebels were still maintaining a presence along the Rappahannock at Culpeper and Fredericksburg, Lincoln consistently emphasized the one theme that was foremost in his mind, namely the destruction of the enemy army. On June 14th, the day before Ewell's victory at 2nd Winchester, Lincoln had wired Hooker, quote, If the head of Lee's army is at Martinsburg and the tail of it on the plank road between Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, the animal must be very slim somewhere. Could you not break him? End quote. Well, by the time Lincoln sent that message, the Army of the Potomac was finally on the move, marching to stay between the Confederates and Washington. But Hooker wasn't in a position, nor a frame of mind, to take advantage of Lee's far-flung deployments as Lincoln hoped. It wasn't until Milroy's garrison at Winchester was in mortal peril that Joe Hooker finally woke up to the dimensions of the march that Lee and the rebel army had stolen on him. If this was a chess match, Robert E. Lee was two moves ahead of his opponent, so now Hooker would have to play catch-up. Hooker was still uncertain about Lee's exact intentions, but it was clear that large numbers of the enemy were in the Shenandoah Valley, and so the federal commander was obliged to move his own forces away from the Rappahannock and place them in a better position to cover Washington. Here we just want to mention the difference, militarily, between operating on exterior lines and operating on interior lines. If you think of Washington and Baltimore as being at the center of a circle, with the circumference of that circle drawn out along the arc of the Shenandoah and Cumberland Valleys, then it's easy to understand that Robert E. Lee would be operating along exterior lines during the march north. That is, he would be marching around the outside of the circle. 
Hooker, however, would be operating on interior lines. That is, he would be marching inside the circle, with shorter distances to move as far as protecting Washington was concerned. But, but Hooker had hesitated to start to move the Army of the Potomac for so long that he'd allowed Lee to steal a march on him. Remember, if this was a chess match, then at this point in the campaign, Robert E. Lee was two moves ahead of Joe Hooker. Given that Lee had already seized the initiative so decisively, that meant Hooker was now going to have to play catch-up. And for the Federal soldiers, that meant that although they would be moving inside the circle, along interior lines, they were trying to make up for lost time, and so they would have to make forced marches to get into a better position to cover Washington. Put simply, they were going to have to march hard in order to quickly get into positions where they'd be between the rebels and Washington. A federal lieutenant in the Third Corps later recalled, quote, The Army of the Potomac had been warned to be ready for any sort of work that might develop, but nobody thought there was any hurry until one day couriers were seen flying in all directions with orders to march in two hours with sparse baggage and plenty of ammunition. The hurry and commotion, the stir and haste, the excitement of the scattered camps that day may be fitly likened to the fermentation occasioned in a wasp's big nest when stirred up by a long pole. Staff officers and generals were to be seen galloping in all directions, arraying their troops in marching order. The hustle and bustle was the result of Joe Hooker issuing orders on Saturday, June 13th, to pull his 7th Infantry Corps away from the Rappahannock and northward to Dumfries and Manassas Junction. For the initial stage of the march, the Army would move in two groups to ease the flow of traffic on the roads of Northern Virginia. The 1st, 3rd, and 11th Corps would aim directly for Manassas to secure the Army's left flank and to block any sudden advance by Robert E. Lee on Washington by way of Thoroughfare Gap in the nearby Bull Run Mountains. The 5th Corps, which had been guarding the upper Rappahannock, would march to Manassas Junction to join that part of the Army. Hooker placed John Reynolds in charge of this wing of the Army, consisting of Reynolds' own 1st Corps and then the 3rd, 5th, and 11th Corps. Meanwhile, the rear would be brought up by the 2nd, 6th, and 12th Corps, coming through Dumfries and Fairfax Courthouse, in order to cover the evacuation of the Army's supply base at Aquia Creek. You see, while the Army had been encamped near Fredericksburg, its supply line ran out of Aquia Landing on the Lower Potomac, but the movement of the Army to cover Washington meant that the Federal supply line would have to be shifted to the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, which ran out of Alexandria, close to the capital. At any rate, Hooker's headquarters would accompany this part of the army. One federal corps after another formed into long columns, and hour after hour tramped north on poor roads, with the men sweating under the broiling sun and choked by clouds of dust. It didn't help matters that these movements occurred during a heat wave, and the weather affected everyone. 
Because they hadn't made any long marches for quite a while, and because of the brutal heat and scarcity of good drinking water, there was fair amount of straggling. A soldier in a Pennsylvania regiment complained, The day was very hot, the roads were filled with dust, and the march of 28 miles was so oppressive that a number of men fell from sunstroke and exhaustion. When a halt was finally called and the men prepared a camp for the night, a weary New Jerseyman was so exhausted that he had only enough strength to scribble in his diary, they came very near marched us to death. A member of the 7th Maine noted, We left the Rappahannock Saturday night and have been marching ever since, four days later, hardly stopping to eat or sleep. It has been the hardest march in my experience. It was hot, the roads were dusty and filled with trains, and the men fell out by the roadside in scores, overcome by the heat and exertion. Numbers died from sunstroke. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. These were days of hard marching for many of the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac, whose stamina was now called upon to compensate for the uncertainty of their commander. Hooker had shrugged off Abraham Lincoln's suggestions for aggressive action and contented himself with moving the army so as to protect Washington. But in the midst of this crisis, Hooker was still very much in the dark and uncertain as to what exactly Robert E. Lee was trying to do. Was Lee crossing the Upper Potomac, or was that only a feint? Was he merely trying to distract federal attention while he detached troops for service in the West? Was he about to attack the Union garrison at Harper's Ferry? Or was he actually about to lunge straight east toward Washington to catch Hooker's army unprepared and strung out marching northward? Dispatches full of speculation and fragmentary information 
flew back and forth between Hooker's headquarters in the field and Lincoln, Halleck, and Secretary of War Stanton in Washington. The biggest difficulty continued to be finding out just what Robert E. Lee was up to. As we mentioned previously on the podcast, Lee had first used the Rappahannock River to shield the initial stage of his movement away from Fredericksburg. And now, as we mentioned at the top of this show, the Confederates were using the Blue Ridge Mountains to conceal the march of their army down the Shenandoah Valley to the Potomac. Hooker had been kept almost entirely in the dark about Lee's intentions because of the masterful work done by Jeb Stuart and his horsemen in screening the Confederate drive north and guarding the gaps or passes in the Blue Ridge. On June 16th, Hooker complained to Washington, quote, We can never discover the whereabouts of the enemy or divine his intentions so long as he fills the country with a cloud of cavalry. We must break through that to find him. This was an indirect slap at the Union cavalry commander, Alfred Pleasanton, and it wasn't without merit. Pleasanton's ineptitude at reconnaissance and gathering useful information was creating a troublesome intelligence fog for Hooker. On June 17th, Dan Butterfield, Hooker's chief of staff, sent, um, helpful advice to Pleasanton, reminding him that the commanding general, quote, relies upon you with your cavalry force to give him the information of where the enemy is, his force, and his movements. You have a sufficient cavalry force to do this. Drive in his pickets if necessary and get us information. It is better that we should lose men than be without knowledge of the enemy, as we now seem to be. This message, as it was designed to do, spurred Pleasanton to act promptly and decisively and led to the eruption of several cavalry battles in the Loudoun Valley during the third week of June. Between the Army of the Potomac and the distant Blue Ridge lay another, closer, smaller mountain chain, the Bull Run Mountains. Between the Bull Run Mountains and the Blue Ridge lay a space a dozen or so miles across called the Loudoun Valley. Again, a map will help you see what we're talking about, but even in your mind's eye, you can picture how, if you're traveling west from Washington across northern Virginia, there's the Army of the Potomac shielding the capital, then there's the Bull Run Mountains, then the Loudoun Valley, and then you'd get out to the Blue Ridge Mountains. A well-traveled east-west road cut across the Loudoun Valley and split just west of the town of Aldi. From there, the main road, the Ashby's Gap Turnpike, ran west through Middleburg and Upperville and climbed the eastern slope of the Blue Ridge to Ashby's Gap. The lesser road led northwest to another pass over the mountains, Snickers Gap. Now the gaps, or passes, are significant because with the rebel army moving behind the screen of the Blue Ridge, it was critically important that Jeb Stuart's Confederate cavalry hold the gaps that led over the mountains to prevent the Federals from peering over into the Shenandoah Valley, so to speak, and obtaining information about what Robert E. Lee was doing. 
Well, Alfred Pleasanton was quick enough to act on Butterfield's advice, but the Federal Cavalry commander continued to be a bit baffled about this whole business of intelligence gathering. So he simply set out on June 17th to pick a fight with the first rebel cavalry he found in the Loudoun Valley. And near Aldi, the Federals got all the fight they could handle. The Federals in question were the horsemen in the brigade of Judson Kilpatrick. As the war went on, Kilpatrick would gain the reputation of being rather careless with the lives of the men under his command, so much so that he was given the unflattering nickname Kill Cavalry by his own men. At Brandy Station, Kilpatrick had launched his attacks piecemeal, throwing away lives and wasting strength, and here at Aldi, he did the same thing. Guarding the two roads just to the west of Aldi was Fitz Lee's brigade of rebel horsemen, although Lee had been sidelined by an attack of rheumatoid arthritis, so just now his brigade was commanded by Colonel Thomas Munford. At any rate, with his characteristic lack of subtlety, Kilpatrick sent his four regiments charging headlong against Munford's Confederates. But, just as at Brandy Station, Kilpatrick's piecemeal attacks here also failed to overwhelm the rebels. There was some furious combat at Aldi that afternoon. In fact, Jeb Stuart declared it was some of the bloodiest cavalry fighting of the war. But at the end of the day, Munford still controlled the two important roads leading up to the gaps. In Pleasanton's sole effort at reconnaissance that day, the first Rhode Island passed through Thoroughfare Gap in the Bull Run Mountains and riding northward in the Loudoun Valley reached Middleburg, west of Aldi. Colonel Alfred Duffy had been demoted to regimental command after his lackluster performance at Brandy Station, and so here he was back at the head of the first Rhode Island. Sweeping into Middleburg, Duffy and his men almost, almost captured Jeb Stewart and his headquarters. In fact, as one of Stewart's officers put it, general and staff, quote, were compelled to make a retreat more rapid than was consistent with dignity and comfort, end quote. But putting the skier into Jeb Stewart proved to be the high point of Duffy's excursion. That night he barricaded himself in Middleburg and called on Pleasanton for help, but his SOS was ignored. By the next morning, the first Rhode Island had been systematically cut up and captured nearly whole. Just 61 out of the 275 troopers in the regiment made it back to friendly lines. Before sending them into the Shenandoah Valley, Robert E. Lee had kept the men of Longstreet's Corps in the Loudoun Valley in the hopes that their presence there on that side of the Blue Ridge would confuse the Federals about Lee's intentions. It was a good idea, but a wasted effort since Pleasanton completely missed them. As a matter of fact, on June 18th, with Longstreet's foot soldiers spread along the eastern base of the Blue Ridge, Pleasanton blithely informed Army headquarters, quote, From all the information I can gather, there is no force of consequence of the enemy's infantry this side of the Blue Ridge. End quote. Well, Chief of Staff Butterfield immediately fired back that it was the job of a cavalry commander to find out where the enemy was, not where he wasn't. Ouch. 
Okay. Well, on the 18th, Pleasanton sent several detachments probing toward the Blue Ridge, but none could get past the screening rebel cavalry. The next day, June 19th, Pleasanton decided to try another straight-ahead drive, as he had done at Aldi. The target this time would be Middleburg, five miles to the west, on the road leading to Ashby's Gap. The clash at Middleburg proved to be a virtual repeat of the one at Aldi two days earlier. Here, Stuart took up a defensive position on a low ridge west of town and fended off charge after charge thrown at him by the Federals. As the enemy pressure continued, though, Stuart broke off the action and pulled back to the next ridge line. The two sides rested the next day and licked their wounds. Then, on Sunday, June 21st, Pleasanton launched his most ambitious effort yet to crack Stuart's cavalry screen. The scene of this latest attempt was Upperville, a village at the very foot of the mountains, only about four miles from Ashby's Gap. Pleasanton thought he had the answer to Stuart's effective tactics of placing dismounted rebel horsemen, mostly sharpshooters, behind stone fences and backing them up with batteries of horse artillery, as well as having mounted units nearby ready for counterattacks. And so the federal battle plan at Upperville combined frontal attacks by cavalry to pin the Confederates in place, supplemented by a brigade of Union infantry to outflank the rebel defenses. The new federal tactics produced much close-in fighting and some success. One Union infantry officer was quite impressed by the sight as, quote, the sabers flashed in the sun as the men mingled together and fought in a writhing mass, cutting and slashing each other. Riderless horses ran to and fro over the fields, many of them covered by the blood of their late riders. As the light faded, Federal horsemen approached Ashby's Gap, only to find it securely held by the enemy. Pleasanton called it quits and pulled his cavalry back to Aldi for rest and refitting. During the fighting in the Loudoun Valley, Jeb Stewart's force had bent but not broken, and in the end, he'd ably guarded the Blue Ridge Passes. The combat had been ferocious and costly. All told, over a five-day span, the Federals lost about 880 men and the Confederates 510. Stewart had successfully denied the Federals a good look into the Shenandoah Valley, but from deserters, Pleasanton did finally learn that Longstreet's corps had been in the Loudoun Valley, but now had passed through the Blue Ridge Gaps into the Shenandoah. Ewell's corps had gone toward Winchester the previous week, Pleasanton reported, and, quote, another corps, A.P. Hills, I think, is to move with Longstreet into Maryland. This information revealed where much of the Confederate Army was, if not where it was going. What still wasn't clear to Hooker was whether Lee would suddenly turn eastward to threaten Washington, or would continue on north into Pennsylvania. Until Hooker got the answer to that question, he would have to hold the Federal Army below the Potomac to protect the capital.
As Union forces had pulled away from their positions on the Rappahannock Line and moved north, This was Hooker moving the Army of the Potomac off to cover Washington. Exactly. But as that happened, Robert E. Lee had given A.P. Hill his marching orders. After all, with the Yankees' departure, there was no longer any reason for Hill's corps to remain behind, keeping watch at Fredericksburg. And so Hill's troops began their march away from the Rappahannock on June 14th. With A.P. Hill's men marching for Culpeper and then on to the Shenandoah, and with Jeb Stewart's cavalry having turned back the Federal probes toward the Blue Ridge Passes, it was time for Longstreet's corps to proceed down the valley following in Yule's footsteps. As for Dick Yule, after 2nd Winchester, Lee had him move down to the Potomac, but then had him wait there while the other two corps closed up. However, on June 22nd, the day after the fight at Upperville, Lee felt that matters were well enough in hand that he could start Yule's corps into Pennsylvania. And so on that day, Lee sent a message to Yule telling him, Longstreet started today. Hill is in motion. Push on. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Cavalry at Gettysburg, a tactical study of mounted operations during the Civil War's pivotal campaign, June 9th through July 14th, 1863, by Edward G. Longacre. In the interest of keeping the story moving along, we didn't get into much detail in this show about the fighting at Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville. But if you'd like to explore that some more on your own, Long Acres book has a couple of chapters on those engagements. And then we'll also let you know that if you can get your hands on one, issue 43 of the Gettysburg Magazine has an extensive article in it about Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you guys know that just yesterday we released members episode number 100. We're still talking about the preliminaries to Jeb Stewart's ride to Gettysburg, and in this most recent episode, we looked at who Stewart picked to take with him and who he left behind, since that became part of the controversy. We think it's good stuff and hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoy listening to it. And we want to say thank you to the newest members for their support of the podcast. So thank you to Richard, Kathy, Rob, and Rich T. Philip, Chris, Doug, and Frank. And a big thank you to Mary, Suzanne, Spencer, and Lydia for their donations this past week. As we wrap up this show, we want to remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music, and it's used with their kind permission. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.